Hello and welcome to the Introfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news of the week. I'm Drew Cherry, editor in chief, and I'm joined today by executive editor John Fiorillo and editor Rachel Mutter. And the sound you heard in the background is a dial-up modem, and we were making fun of Rachel not being able to even watch a simple YouTube video. So, but she can now, and. The reason she was watching it is she was watching um, a commercial from 1980-something, John. It was a seafood, a generic seafood marketing campaign, and John dug it out of the archives and uh, did some reporting work, and it sounds to me like there maybe is a little bit of momentum um, for a U.S. generic seafood marketing campaign once again, and I have to say... I was actually surprisingly uh, impressed by the the 80s campaign. I think with a few tweaks and a little bit, a uh, few more lines of resolution, it could work. Uh, it could work today. So, John, tell us about it. Yeah. Um, well, the NOAA's uh, Marine Fisheries Advisory Committee has been looking into resurrecting the uh, <clears throat> National Fish and Seafood Promotional Council, which was created in 86 and ran for five years and then uh, disappeared because the industry uh, didn't want to fund it. It was initially funded by Congress to the tune of 11 million in total. But uh, and it, it created uh, generic advertising uh, that was on TV. There were point of sale materials, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it was the first and only time uh, the U.S. industry has done that. And over the years, there's been, you know, calls to bring it back. Well, this one is probably, this attempt is probably further along than any uh, in the past because the, uh, the, the advisory committee at the end of the month will vote on its recommendations for doing this. And pass those along to the Secretary of Commerce and NOAA for uh, the next step, which, you know, doesn't mean it's going to happen, but uh, it's going to be pushed forward. And with the Trump administration and his Commerce Secretary pretty uh, loving of seafood these days, who knows? Who knows? But, um, yeah, so what I did, uh, I... I remember the campaign because I was writing about seafood back then. Yes, I was. And I remember Jeannie Grasso was the uh, program director. So I tracked her down, got her on the phone, and uh, just thought I'd find out what she thought of this uh, new run at it. So, yeah, so that's basically what I did. So, Rachel, I think you were just probably getting your braces taken off in 1989. <laughs> 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 so, I mean, I was even there yet. Oh, no, I'm oh. very, very young. Wow. You weren't even born. <laughs> wow. Man. Sorry, John. Barely, yeah. barely. She was barely born. <laughs> That's not true. We won't talk about that. That's so, not true. Yeah. Yes. Let's not talk about it. Um, but, but, you know, I... I it, it has been something that's been talked about over the years, um, John, and it always seems to fall flat or it seems like somebody from the corner 
of some part of the industry has the idea and puts out a press release and it's all just bunk. So are you feeling like this is for real and could actually happen and who's going to be willing to pay for it? Well, you know, they, they've talked to a pretty good cross section of the industry um, some major companies and um, there seems to be some buy-in, but you know, it, it's hard to say. I think, NFI has, um, under John Conley, has really not wanted to take that organization in this direction or, you know, do a lot to push a generic campaign. So I don't think that has changed. Uh, they've taken a different approach and um, it's, it's you know, it's been working. It's, it's a little different than a national campaign, of course. But um, I, it's hard to say, you know, it, it's just... Um, they're going to come up with these recommendations and who knows once it gets to um who once it gets to the commerce secretary no i mean they've been working on this for two years they've held um you know lots of meetings put together really good material that explains you know the options and stuff like that i i think it's interesting just to note though uh, the the very first campaign really the the evidence, if you just follow the uh, per capita consumption numbers, the the uh, campaign really didn't boost consumption. In fact, it, it went down um, the last two years of the campaign. What it did do, though, however, is it produced the eat fish and seafood twice a week tagline, which we still use a lot today, which is still uh, kind of fundamental to the industry's message, no matter who's who's giving it, whether it's a regional uh, uh, seafood group or, you know, a national group like um, out there trying to do something. So um, it was a win from that point of view, I guess, um, but not not a win from the consumption point of view. But it did, you noted that the the effort started in 86, and you have a great graph in that story about when it Mm -hmm. it launched and what happened the year after. So the effort started in 86, uh, 87 saw that big jump to the record high we've never met. So there was no, there was no correlation there because the campaign in full force rolled out later. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. The campaign itself was really the last three years of the effort. You know, it was a brand new program. So it had to get ramped up and you know, that, that took a little while and they had to hire an executive director, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, it's interesting because it came along at a time when seafood consumption was really climbing. Like in 84, it was at 14 pounds roughly. And, um, you know, in 86, it was at 15 and a half. So it came at a time when things were already kind of soaring and, I haven't quite figured out why that was, but then, um, you know, then it kind of just, um, the, you know, it started trending down again. So, yeah, well, you, you never quite know why, I guess. And that's the hard part is even with these consumption figures, particularly in the U.S., I don't want to say you have to take them with a grain of salt because I know people work really hard on calculating these numbers, but, you know, they're not gospel um and that's not necessarily although this sounds really counterintuitive it's not necessarily the strict measure of how consumers are um taking to seafood 
because the reason I say that is because it can be that they're moving away from one species uh, and toward another. And is that a loss? Is that a win? I don't know. Um, well, you know. but you know, you can look at the edible fish supply in that is reported every year. And, you know, that's a solid number. That's the number produced minus exports. And then you add in imports and that really has varied not a lot, especially over the last decade or decade and a half. So I, I hear a lot of people say, you know, you can't really trust the per capita numbers. And, and to some degree, I, I agree with that. However, it's the only benchmark we really have. And um, so they've been doing it fairly consistently for decades so I feel pretty good about it. Like, I, I don't think, like, we're consuming way more seafood than those numbers suggest, nor do I think we're consuming tons less. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a little more supportive of the numbers than, than you, maybe. Hmm. All right. So, Rachel, uh, what's your initial thoughts? You know, the twice a week has actually been, um, you know, uh, rolled out in the U.K. since I don't know when. Should have checked our archives before we went to the podcast. I will look that up and find it. But it's been out for quite a while, and seafood consumption has um, it's it's gone up in uh, some years. It's been a little bit up and down in the UK. But um, putting your US hat on, what do you think of the odds of this actually moving the needle? Um, and and what would you uh, what would you do? Let's say you were given the money. Where would you put that effort in terms of species, in terms of how you would roll it out? Well, okay, that's a position of power. Um, Yeah, firstly, actually, I have a question, John. Like, how much did they spend on that campaign the first time around, do you know? They spent a total of $11 So in today's dollars, that's about $22 million, roughly. Yeah, $22 million. That's a lot. But but keep in mind... But keep in mind, there was no such thing as social media back then. So your ability to leverage a dollar of, you know, campaign money now versus then is extremely different. You you can get a lot more bang for the buck. So, you know, I mean, I, I don't know how much they would even try and get if they were to do it again. I haven't seen any numbers on that yet. So. But mm, that's you know, true. And, yeah. th- and that's a good point, though. That's a good point, because actually, in today's world, it's much, much easier to market yourself um, in terms of platform availability. And But but you'd need to be clever about it, obviously. And I think it's probably worth the seafood industry spending some money employing someone who knows what they're doing in terms of marketing, you know, not a seafood executive. Um yeah. But a, a long-standing, high-profile marketing exec could make quite a difference, I think, to the seafood sector. Um, you know, time and time again, there's been examples of, okay, it's often been sort of big brands, but who've, you know, employed a, a good marketing agency who've really sort of taken their product to the next level using social media, um, using all the platforms available. And if seafood did that, if seafood actually made that commitment um and as you say it wouldn't necessarily have to cost that much although i mm. guess i guess these guys are expensive i don't know i mean i think i'm interested to know why nfi is sort of against that has been against that as a route 
you know, up until this point, do you know? Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I mean, they're not actively working against it, but they, mm. they, they had a they have a philosophy of um, controlling more the media message that is out there. For, so they deal with food writers and dietitians and and right. you know any any negative press they counter quickly. So that's generally been their approach rather than uh, marketing. But you know they. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, they're not. They're, I don't want to make it sound like they're working against it because that's not. No, 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 no. Correct. No, sorry. No, I just wondered why sort of, it, you know, they hadn't really invested in something like that again up to this point. But I guess, as you say, the last time it didn't actually seem to move the dial very much. So I guess there's something to be said there. But yeah, the world, the world has changed. Marketing now is a totally different thing, um, and you can reach far more people far more easily than you ever could before. But yeah, the message needs to be right, and I. It, I do think um, the seafood industry generally, not just in the U.S., has a sort of slightly old-fashioned approach um, to how they sort of sell themselves. So I think maybe employing some youthful marketing whizzes could make quite a difference. Um, well, it's funny you, you mentioned that because that that ad from '89 that was embedded in the story was, I thought really good i mean i thought that could cross right over to today it was quirky it was really quirky and but but clear in its message right i mean it touched on health and it touched on species and all that but it, i agree with you it seems the advertising you see in seafood is so serious you know it's it's healthy for you it's this it's that it yeah. it just seems so serious and i and that ad to me was like well what's this all about you know i, I wanted to listen a couple times because it it speaks really fast and it, you know you miss some stuff yeah. but yeah i mean it's kind of catchy and upbeat but i yeah i agree with you too that the message of this this twice a week thing i mean as much as maybe it served the industry well i don't know i don't even know if it really has um yeah it sort of plays as you say to that like seafood is good for you message which is great but i'm not sure that necessarily makes people want to eat it sort of seems like a you know seems like when you have to go for a run like you have to eat seafood <laughs> and you have to go for a run like, clearly you're not a runner make me okay, want to go for a run <laughs> we've established that okay yes it makes me think like it's like a penance and i <laughs> right. I, I don't know maybe you have to get away from that yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, they they do a lot in that little ad, so I I actually agree with John. I think there there's there's some good stuff in there. Now, you know, if that went flying past on social media or something, I don't know enough about marketing psychology to know if that actually works or not. Um, I have no idea, but um, but I do think that you know, Rachel, you bring up a really good point, and that is uh, that is social media. And that is um, that is truly the the major uh, the major difference between today and what you could do thirty years ago. Um, but you didn't answer my question, Rachel. So uh, where would you spend that money? Let's say you had twenty million dollars. Uh, where would you put that? Uh, where would you put that money towards if you were going to promote it? Wow, this is like a high pressure question. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I sort of did answer that. I think I'd employ I'd employ a marketing agency because because where else do you put that money? Because you don't have to pay for TV advertisements anymore. In fact, I'd say it's fairly pointless 
you just you know you make a decent ad you put it on youtube and you spread it around the internet it's it's as simple as that but but it's about the money needs to be spent on the messaging and the imagery and the and i think that's where they need to invest um yeah as i say getting someone from outside who knows what they're talking about and doesn't necessarily know seafood doesn't have all that um you know doesn't have all that history in the industry because i think sometimes that's a bit a bit damaging um to the way seafood presents itself so yeah getting an outsider in paying them the big bucks and yeah getting a good message out there maybe a different message from what's been put out before Oh my God. Well, I think we can be happy that Rachel's not in charge of the purse strings <laughs> at this new campaign because she would just throw Sachi it at Sachi, some, yeah, just throw it at yeah, some marketing agency. agency. Let it be their well, problem. Yeah. No, I, well, what I will say is, uh, the, the ads, the cookie based ads that follow you around all the time as as ridiculous as they are. And as much as you know, what is happening to you when you see them, I don't know what I searched. Well, of course I know what I searched. I search all day long. Seafood, salmon, cod, whatever. And so anyway, so movie and it's, uh, and it's salmon in Amazon Fresh has followed me around the house. And it shows up everywhere. It shows up on uh, my kids' devices. It just, it's everywhere. But you know what? Mm, I noticed, and here I am talking about it. Um, and I can't, I don't even know how much of movies products are even available at Whole Foods, to be honest. It's difficult to say online, um, where it is. I know they pushed the campaign back, but it seems mixed as to whether or not it's, it's on there. But anyway, point being, these types of targeted ad techniques, whether they are in front of YouTube videos or, you know, right next to when you search, um, how long does it take to cook salmon or whatever it is. Um, they do kind of work. And so, yeah, I think that, that those types of sophisticated techniques are well beyond what most people in, uh, in uh, marketing and seafood do. Marketing is kind of one of those positions, it seems, in seafood where it's sort of like the, the musical chairs. Like you don't want to have that on your plate. You don't necessarily want to be in marketing and it's always tacked on as like you know whatever production manager nvp marketing or something so i think it's like the the title that you get given when somebody doesn't want to give you a raise necessarily you know they say well you're also in charge of marketing now so wow well, I'm yeah, just saying, for, no, for, I, it's for, an important for, for job. For all our friends who are in marketing and seafood, <laughs> that let is, me apologize no, to my boss. Thank no, you. no, what I'm saying, I'm not saying, what I'm saying is that if you don't employ professionals uh, and if you don't take marketing seriously, you're going to get what you pays for, you know? So if you're Rachel and you have $20 million to blow, <laughs> apparently you can get something pretty good. But again, I mean, in the past, we've seen people do kind of ridiculous things. Like, I think it was Asmi not too long ago that, you know, got like a two-second spot at the Super Bowl, you know, which is like exciting and completely pointless. So you have to be careful, I think, and really smart about how you deploy it. And I think some of it has to do with sponsored content and getting, uh, you know, getting celebrity chefs and things to... to cook for you and i guess that plays pretty well you know we we're in the business of being skeptical and we know these companies so we kind of know what's happening but um i think for others you know it does seem to kind of work that this this voodoo can kind of work on them so 
So we'll see. We shall see, John, but I'm skeptical that it will get off the ground and skeptical that we'll ever see uh, anything quite uh, as amazing as the 1980s campaign, which I think they should just put that one back on the air. I think it's pretty good. It's got a very Monty Python feel to it, Rachel, it, it actually. It does. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. does, actually. It does. So of it's kind of smart. The 80s are back, so if you just wait long enough, your, your marketing can be relevant again, you know, 30 years <laughs> later. Say, I was going to say, does anybody know Monty Python anymore? But well, I guess. I think those Besides, of us that were writing about seafood. Now, just sort of looking confused. Yeah. yeah. Be- yeah. Besides all the fifty-year-olds in the seafood industry, but whatever. Yeah, we don't, we don't need to talk about them. All right, so let's shift gears a little bit um, to land-based salmon because wow, is it in the headlines all the time? Um, some big news uh, that's rolled out uh, is that Aqua Group has uh, been awarded a contract with AquaCon. It is a major new land-based salmon farming project uh, in the United States, on the east coast of the United States. And they are planning on IPOing, uh, doing a private placement to finance this project. And um, it's going to be a big deal. Uh, certainly, Aqua Group uh, getting the contract and taking an equity stake in it shows that uh, this thing has legs. And they do have a really good team, uh, one uh, one former movie executive, one former executive from Atlantic Sapphire Denmark, which is really one of the few salmon farm, land-based salmon farms that has really made it work in terms of full grow-out. So that's kind of a good get. Um but I talked to uh, Henrik Tongen, who's the executive uh, chairman, and um, it, it sounds like they have found a pretty exciting project there. So one more on the table. We have Onfjord Salmon that just moved from uh, just moved on to the uh, uh, Mercure market, or applied to move on to the Mercure market. And, of course, Atlantic Sapphire uh, ready to get its fish out of the water and um, continues to outperform pretty much every other salmon farmer, at least as of yesterday. So there's a lot of different ways, as uh, Rachel, you and I wrote, there's a lot of different ways to lose money on land-based salmon farming. Um, So I just want to hear from both of you. We haven't talked about this topic in a while, but we've certainly written about it a lot because there are so many projects coming out of the woodwork. Are you thinking any differently about it, Rachel, than you were um, a couple months ago, just with all these headlines? Are you feeling like things are moving to a different level of reality? Mm, No. Um, I'm kind of exhausted by it, to be honest. Uh, I think there's so much hype around it. It's so difficult to see what is real and what isn't. I mean, we were just talking about marketing then, and actually maybe what everyone needs to do is employ uh, Johan Andreasen uh, to do their marketing for them because he, you know, he really, he really is good at talking up um, this Atlantic Sapphire project. Um, and, you know, he, he's all over social media putting out these sort of very bullish statements about um, changing the way Americans eat seafood. And, and on one hand, all credit to him. It's, it's great. This is what needs to happen, really. Uh, this, this kind of, this kind of talk and this kind of marketing, but, yeah, there's still no fish in the market from this place. So it's, you know, how these people are investing all this money in something 
that hasn't even produced a fish, I, I, I don't understand. I don't understand. And obviously these people have more money possibly than I do on my intrafish wage. But still, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of terrifying to me. And I, but also fascinating because I think, you know, give it, give it a year or so and we'll be seeing probably more truth around these projects because Atlantic Sapphire, I think they're set to, um, put the first fish on the market from the US facility um this autumn I think we said I think the first um, comes out in July doesn't it July is it yeah. July like ah okay yeah. well I mean I'm pretty excited for that to happen because I think that's when we see the reality of this project like what it tastes like you know there's been a little bit of skepticism around whether it actually tastes good um so we'll see. We'll see. Will people snap it up? Um, will consumers see it the way Andreasen does as a sort of a whole new way to eat seafood, the freshest seafood they've ever eaten? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of exhausted by it and yet fascinated as to what is going to happen next. Well, I yeah, and Oh, go ahead, John. Well, I was just going to say, and, you know, Sapphire is getting all the attention right now, and rightly so, but Aqua Bounty, uh, our GM salmon producer, who is a land-based salmon producer, we seem to always forget that, um, they're going to release their fish around the same time. So, all of a sudden, the market will be flooded with land-based salmon. Um, but, yeah, so I, I've, I'm kind of thinking they're turning the corner on this and i think in the next few years there will actually a lot of these projects will actually start produce producing you know significant amounts of fish but I, that's just the way it feels right now yeah i you know i i have been probably the most critical person in the entire seafood industry of land-based salmon farming um, but I've also you know, been a champion of innovation. I, I love innovation um, and love kind of what it represents in terms of a, an, an evolution of aquaculture because I think that's the only real way we're going to see progress in, uh, in, in the United States uh, in particular in aquaculture and in a lot of different regions uh, because there's just no place to grow salmon farming. Um, but, but I've been very critical. I've been critical of the way that some of the risks are glossed over. Um, and and I think that's important, and it's important that somebody sort of waves their hands, even if it's in vain, and so I'm happy to be that person. Um, and I have brought up uh, Off Flavor um, in some columns, and we've reported about that as well and done some really good reporting on on the, the issue of off, off Flavor and taken some flack for what uh, I think people in the recirculating aquaculture system world felt was being overly critical or blowing up the issue bigger than it is, that it's an issue that's been solved. Well, okay, but when you are talking about the volumes of salmon that you're going to produce, the volumes of product you're going to put on the market, and the amount of money that you are asking people to put into your company... uh, I think it's a valid question. I think it's a big risk. Um, and there's a lot of little details and tweaks that need to happen to make sure that fish takes, tastes good. Because ultimately, if it doesn't, what do you really have in the end? So I'm very excited for Sapphire to get its fish on the market. I have eaten um, some land-based uh, grow-out salmon 
uh, not too long ago. I'm not going to say who it was from because it's not fair uh, based on one tasting for me to um, to judge uh, to judge a whole company. But it definitely tasted muddy, and it wasn't just me. Uh, I I offered it to several other people. And they all had the same reaction, that it tasted either off or tasted a little funny. First few bites, great. And then this sort of aftertaste of muddiness. Um, and that's the geosmine. And that's, that's that little, uh, that little uh, uh, bugger that gets in there and, and gives you that, that flavor. So, um, yeah, so we shall see. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, now we, we have a some discipline on this because at least with sapphire they're public so there's nowhere to run and hide anymore for for them and for any of the other ones now moving on to uh the stock exchange um which is good i mean at least we'll be able to clearly see what's happening we'll be able to see these costs are they in line with um traditional net pen costs uh, you know, are they having to, like you said, are they having to destroy product because of poor quality, off taste, whatever it may be? So, I mean, the, the, to me, that's probably going to be the most significant development in this whole year is the fact that at least with Sapphire, we could really start to see beneath the water here a little bit and understand the numbers and what's really going on. So. We'll yeah, see. you're right. That transparency is going to be so important because I do think we're already seeing some of these projects. Um, I, my, our colleague Anders, uh, reporter at Intrafish's uh, Norwegian uh, operation, he's also a reporter at uh, Doggins Naring Sleeve, the, um, our, our parent company, or one of the one of the uh, publications that our parent company owns. So he knows the sector really, really well, and what's happening in the Norwegian side. And um, his quote was, some of these projects are just a guy and a cell phone. And I think that is brilliant. Um, and that is why I'm announcing that I am launching a land-based salmon farm today. I'm going to need $150 million for phase one. Uh, no, but there has been some of that. And we've seen some of these fall by the wayside. Some of it's wishful thinking. And, you know, it's always hard for us because... You know, we have to be careful about that in terms of how we write about it because everybody wants to talk about their project. We do our best to, you know, to ferret out, are these people legit? But there are a lot of people out there saying that they're in the process of financing or they've got an investor or somebody's interested. Uh, and it turns out to kind of fall flat. The, the most recent is uh, Jonathan Brown, who is with uh, Grant's Smoke Salmon, used to own McKnight, uh, a salmon smoker here in the United States. Um, and he kind of came out big and said, I've, yeah, I have this land for this massive project and it's going to be amazing. Uh, and that just fell apart. Um, it, it's just, it, it was, uh, Aquacon who, who just announced they were going to be, uh, listing and doing a private placement today. Um, they were the ones that, uh, that were looking at that property and said, you know, it's not really quite going to work for us. So, um, that that didn't end the the Brown from from getting a nine point eight percent stake by the way uh, to sell them the name American Salmon, um, so it worked out pretty well for them. But it's one example of when uh, you can sort of um, 
raise a raise a flag that you uh, have this big project and you may not have anything. You don't have backers. You don't have anybody even. You don't have anybody together yet. So it's difficult, I think, for investors in particular that don't know anything about the sector to figure out who's who's who. And you you have some big people that don't. I don't want to say don't know anything, but you have some big people that may not know how much money is being risked and what it's being risked on. Um, one of Atlantic Sapphire's, I believe, second largest shareholder is the Michigan's Teacher Pension Fund. Um, do they really know, um, you know, exactly what Atlantic Sapphire is? And do they know exactly what they do? Do they know the, the risks of it? I don't know. I don't really know, but it does concern me that there are going to be a lot of people um, jumping into the sector that may not quite know what they're um, what they're in for. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how things go. But more coming out of the market, more that are actually, um, you know, able to uh, able to raise uh, to raise some some uh, funds here. Um, Regents of the University of Michigan, by the way. So, not Teachers Pension Fund of Michigan. So, if you're going to the University of Michigan, uh, a lot of your education is riding on whether or not Atlantic Sapphire does well. So, best of luck to, to you. Know. Good to know. Go Wolverines. Is it the Wolverines? Is that the University of Michigan? Uh, Spartans, Wolverines, I don't know which one. Uh, something one up of them. there. Something up there. Um, all right. Well, let's uh, let's take a, another turn now. Um, we'll stay in Maine, though, where there is some land-based salmon farming. And, um, John... I, I want to talk a little bit. You've been reporting about this uh, over the last couple of days. Um, President Trump went to Maine uh, last week. I believe it was Friday. Is that correct? Or was it Thursday? I believe so. Yeah. I think it was Friday. It yeah. was Friday. Um, and he met with a kind of some strange bedfellows there. He went there to essentially uh, do a strike through on an Obama era. Um, underwater, uh, uh, offshore uh, monument. monument. Yep. And that was kind of the main thing in his continued sort of efforts to erase everything that Obama uh, has accomplished or that Obama uh, put into place. And, and then as part of that, he sat and talked to a small roundtable of, uh, of whitefish harvesters, of some lobstermen, um, and, you know, I have not sat through one of those kind of roundtables with, with uh, Trump and, um, because I haven't had to. <laughs> and for our dear readers, we, we sat and, and watched it. And it was one of the most bizarre things I'd ever seen because you only get clips of how Trump works when he's negotiating or when he's talking to um, – a crowd, especially a crowd that you know is constitu- he sees as constituents. Um, so it was very bizarre to see, uh, especially when it's something in your sector and he's talking to people that you've talked to on the phone and interviewed or that you know. Um, and he made a lot of promises, um, and some of them were vague and outlandish, and you know that's not uncommon for uh, for uh, President Trump. But, yeah, um, John, you saw it too. What do we make about all of these promises uh, about trade, 
Obviously, the monument, even that's unclear if he's going to be able to reverse that. Um, but the sycophantic outpouring um, and his need for that was kind of shocking because you just had a few small, uh, you just had a small room of people. Uh, you had former governor, uh, former Maine governor, Paul LePage, who we'll talk about in a second. But um, what was your, what, what's your take? I mean, was there anything to come out of that? Does this mean anything? Well, I mean, first of all, it was the promise palooza going on. Every every five seconds, there seemed to be a promise. But I think two things came out of that. First, uh, you just referred to <clears throat> Paul LePage, former governor of Maine. Um, if you read up on him, uh, he's he's had quite a um, a history, and some people don't like what he stands for. Um, but Trump, uh, just off the cuff, as far as anybody could tell, because there was no press release or, and there hasn't been since, uh, named him the head of this new task force that will basically uh, run the expansion of offshore aquaculture and the streamlining of fisheries regulations under the executive order that Trump issued on the 7th. So, okay, so Paula Page now is the man. Okay, great. So we don't know what that means yet, but we'll, we'll be seeing. And then he named Peter Navarro, his longtime advisor, the uh, quote unquote lobster king. <laughs> and Peter's job is to, uh, okay. Uh, Peter's job is to get a tariff uh, that is currently in place on U S lobster exports to the EU removed. Um, there's actually two tariffs. There's a tariff on live lobster exports and a tariff on processed and value-added lobster. And the EU has had this tariff on all um, uh, American lobster, and I don't mean just from America. American lobster is the name of the lobster that Canada catches as well. So it's been in place, in place for both countries for a while. And However, Canada has negotiated under its Comprehensive Economic Trade Agreement, CETA as they call it, has negotiated away the 8% tariff on the live lobster and is uh, slowly and eventually eliminating the 16% to 20% tariff on the value-added lobster. They, they went into negotiation with the EU and in 2017, they, they were successful. The U.S., on the other hand, was uh, going the same route through the, I think it's called TIP, the Tra Transatlantic Trade Investment Partnership um, deal. But uh, the Trump administration uh, kicked that to the curb. So they have no ability now to do what, what Canada has done. So when it was explained to Trump, it sounded you know, just like the U.S. was being picked on um, and Canada was getting some sort of preferential treatment when in reality, the U S just didn't follow through with the trade deal that probably would have given them the same thing that Canada's getting. You can't say that for sure, but that's where it was headed. So Trump's immediate response was shock and awe and horror and immediately told Navarro, the new lobster king, to 
get a retaliatory tariff against the EU on all the cars they send to the U.S. <laughs> okay, so um, we've been trying to reach Navarro's office. We've been trying to reach anybody who might have any connection with knowing whether anything has happened since the promised Palooza a week or so ago. And I haven't been successful yet, but, you know, we, we keep working on it. So will anything come of it? I think that might have been a question you asked me uh, before <laughs> I rambled. Sorry. Uh, but uh, no, I, I don't know. I don't know if anything will come of it or not. You know, it was a crazy if, – if you haven't listened to it or watched it, God, please go do that yeah. because it's it's amazing. <laughs> it, it is kind of amazing. And I think if you're in the seafood industry, um, you'll find it even more amazing. Um, so do look it up. Uh, I think we have it embedded in one of our stories on it, by the way. Yeah, so, we do. So go, go check it out and, and behold. Um, yeah, I mean, I think – yeah, and let's not forget that the part of the reason that that uh, that Maine Lobster is in such a, a difficult position was the trade war that was ignited by by China or ignited with China by Trump. Um, yep. That is, you know, that was far more damaging. Um, so as you said, there there's, you know, it's not it's certainly not the way that he that he painted it, but. Um, but no, um, yeah, good reporting on that because that helps explain it to me because you haven't written your story on this yet. So I'm looking forward to that, to, um, to you uh, explicating that. Now, I want to talk uh, about uh, Paul LePage a bit or at least use him as a springboard. Um, yeah, Paul LePage is not just uh, controversial. I mean, the comments that he has made are absolutely despicable um you know that there there can be uh opinions about his politics and about uh how he uh, you know what what he puts into place but in terms of how he uh views race and how he talks about uh people of color and in particular black people uh in america uh is just absolutely despicable so i want to i want to say that and i think it would be interesting to see how the industry who came out so excited for the um for the seafood trade task force um how they're going to square this circle and we're not going to let them off the hook uh in particular because of black lives matter you almost could not have chosen a worse person uh, to be a representative for the seafood industry. If this is going to be the face of the seafood industry and getting seafood consumption to increase, wow, uh, that is not good for the U.S. Uh, seafood industry whatsoever. Um, so that'll be very interesting. But I, I just I, I could not believe that that was uh, going to be the outcome, uh, especially in the middle of... Uh, a trip where Trump was trying to get out of Washington, D.C. because of all these protests. So um, so I think that's going to be very interesting to, to see how that uh, plays out and how the industry handles that. Um, now, that's on one side. The, the second part of this is, um, you know, I, I'm interested in Black Lives Matter uh, in, in its relationship, from a work perspective, in its relationship to... Uh, the seafood industry and companies in general, because 
I, I've had some conversations about this, um, and we've been kind of wrestling about how how does this how, how do we relate this? How does this uh, how does this affect um, the the interests of our readers in the sense that our job is to uh, write about the sector and you know bring value to our our readers as obviously we write about things that matter to to the industry uh, and things that matter to our readers and certainly Black Lives Matter and uh, and race in America and around the world matters to the seafood industry and it's impossible now to ignore. Um, that this is a movement that is that is going to, to it's already leading to some changes and it's going to to lead to even bigger changes. Um, now I don't know how we go about thinking about this, uh, putting our putting our business hats on. If you're a business in seafood, how do you go about um, communicating your support for this? And there's been some mealy mouth kind of memes that have gone out that have said, you know, our company uh, respects diversity. You have to respect diversity. It's the law. So you don't get a cookie for obeying the law. Um, so I, I think it's a, it's a little bit of a, a difficult thing. I had a, um, a, somebody from a, a seafood company um, call me off the record last week, and we had a conversation about this. And I don't think the executive would mind just me touching on a couple of things we talked about since they're, um, you know, since they're kind of part of the broader conversation. But um, the executive said, you know, the silence is deafening from the seafood industry. And this goes to an interesting place, which is what responsibility do private companies have to come out uh, on this particular issue? I'm not... I don't think we right now should conflate it with other political things, whether it's um, you know whether it's Republican or Democrat. I get that you are going to what we what we observed with Trump and the the lobstermen. Um, well, let me not let me not paint the the lobstermen in that. Let's say what we observed around that table with some of the people in the main industry was um, people acting in their in their best interests and trying to deal with this. You know this person that really has an ego that needs to be, um, you know, that needs to be fed all the time. I understand that kind of partisan movement. This is different, um, and and I I don't know what the right solution is for companies. You know, we're going to be writing about it. We're going to be thinking about this. But it was very enlightening to me to talk to this executive who is a, a person of color, and just kind of dive into what the challenges were for. Um, for this person in the industry and what it's like um, and questioning how the industry can get better at diversity. The industry's gotten better at gender diversity and this still has a long way to go on that. Um, and Rachel, you've done a lot of work on that. But I'm just curious about cultural diversity and in particular, just keeping it narrow on Black Lives Matter what should the industry do? And I don't have the answers, but um, just wanted to throw that out to the, the two of you to just, um, you know, where, where should the industry be going? What, what's, what are companies doing out there that are doing it right outside of the seafood industry and doing it wrong outside of the seafood industry? Um, John, maybe you could start. Well, <clears throat> along those lines, I, I noticed Greg Seafood uh, yesterday put up um, – 
a short message on it and they they have a background now uh, a rainbow background to signify their support for um you know sexual orientation uh, differences and those things so their message was pretty broad like you said you know just um they respect uh gender ethnicity religion and uh, those things along the lines but to me, I, I don't know what the seafood industry will do here. It, you know, it is a fairly conservative industry. It is certainly predominantly white. I, I, you know, I've been doing this for a while. I know very few African-American people in this industry. And just very to, few. Just to clarify, John, of course, that's, that's in you know, North America, and I guess you could say in Western and Northern Europe, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, to me, uh, just like anything, if the industry is going to be driven to change, it's going to come from within uh, these companies themselves in their uh, employee ranks. And, you know, the employees are going to demand this and some will be listened to and some won't. But, you know, we talk all the time about attracting talent to this industry. If this industry is it's not seen as a place that values, you know, black lives or, you know, just anything, uh, 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 any diversity that um, is out there, it, it's not going to bring people in. So yeah, I, I just haven't seen much response. I think you said it, the silence is deafening and that's probably where I am on all this. I just, I just haven't seen much. Rachel? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a really interesting issue, I think. And I've been sort of reading a little bit about it this week, because there's been some companies, um, actually predominantly UK companies that I was reading about that have come under fire um, for, well, some, no, some companies have been sort of applauded for their for their messaging around this and for their support of Black Lives Matter. Um, and then other companies have sort of come under fire for seemingly looking to sort of take advantage of this sort of important moment in time to progress their brand which you never want to be seen as doing that so it it is it's a really really tricky thing to do I think as a corporate entity to how do you show your support of something like this because on one hand it's really important that you you show what side of the fence you're on, right? Because this isn't a moment where people get to sit back and say nothing. It's, especially if you're a big, um, powerful company in the US, for example, or anywhere in the West at the moment. Um, So you do need to make your views clear and you do need to come out in support of this. And if you don't, I think you'll absolutely be seen as sitting on the other side of the fence. But how you do that has to be done very carefully and it has to be thought out and you have to show true understanding of the issues at play um, because because I think what's coming to light is that actually a lot of us don't understand the real underlying issues here um, that have been going on for, for decades. Um, so I think that's really important. And as both of you have said, I think it, you have to start from within your own company and yes we've done some work on this on, on sort of trying to improve diversity well not improve diversity in seafood companies but at least flag that flag that up that this needs to happen um for the good of the companies for the good of the industry uh for the good of the the general planet but but that's how you you know and you brought up you brought up Greg um who've been um an integral part to our sort of diversity 
events, leadership events that we've held. Um, and they've always sort of revealed quite a forward thinking attitude around diversity within their company. Um, and they're certainly sort of active on that front. And I think other companies need to follow that lead. Yeah. And do more within their own companies to improve diversity and give opportunity. And you start there um, and, and yeah, you take it forward from there, I guess. Yeah, I think that that's kind of what it comes down to are, are concrete steps, I think. Um, in terms, I think you're right, Rachel, that I don't think there's any way that companies, when you're a brand, when you're a brand, you really have to come out and say something. The companies in seafood primarily are, are not. They are um, traders that are raw material suppliers. That said, some of them are major companies. I mean, big, big, big companies. Movie, Taiyunian, uh, Nisui, uh, you know, a lot of these. And I'm saying this without knowing internally what the message has been. I, I, I just don't know. Um, and I haven't looked at everybody's Facebook pages or LinkedIn pages or anything. So I don't know what kind of messages have come out. Um, but it is something, I don't think it's something that you can quietly sit in the corner and not say something about right now. This is, this is, a, this is a, a moment, as you said, Rachel, I think you put it really, really well, that it's a moment in time that's pivotal. Um, and I think that there's no way for any of us to not reckon with, um, with the, the experience of black Americans in particular. But it's also extending to other uh, countries in the West as these protests have been about um, uh, police uh, violence against um, against black Americans. Uh, there's also been all kinds of other issues. So I was talking to somebody earlier about uh, some protests in Oslo where um, there's a lot of, of uh, immigrants into Oslo from, uh, from Ethiopia and, and uh, uh, African countries, for example, that are pointing out these same sort of feelings of being um, outside uh, and of, of, of unfair treatment, um, you know, in these predominantly white societies. So it is something I think the industry is going to have to think about. I think it actually should be something that is prioritized in the boardrooms and thought about what the messages are going to be, certainly within their staffs. Um, anybody that has uh, African-American staff um, should be thinking about this. And I hope that they're, at the very least, not uh, ignoring it and reaching out to uh, those employees and, and uh, talking about this. However, I agree with you, John. You just don't see a lot of um, diversity in, West, in Western seafood companies. And it's a... Um, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because when you are trying to bring in new talent, be it uh, young, be it uh, uh, culturally diverse, be it um, uh, gender diversity, when you're trying to do that, remember that you're going to need to bring people into that office for that office tour. You know, at the at the end of the, <laughs> at the end of the job interview, and you're going to walk them around the office. Um, assuming the world has offices in the future. But you're going to walk them around the office or you're going to get on the Zoom calls and they're going to be making decisions about whether or not this is a place they want to essentially um, lease their their lives to, right? That they want to um, spend their time and grow and to get really talented people. Really talented people have choices. And so, um, so you're going to have to really think about the makeup of your staff. And 
uh, I think we all know from um, n- none of us are millennials, but we certainly have a lot of millennial colleagues, and I think we know well enough. Um, <laughs> well, one of us has, I think, millennial children, um, <laughs> and I think Rachel and I are, we have Gen Z children. Our kids aren't millennials, are they? No, right? I don't know. No, they're not millennials. I don't know no. what the cutoff is. Not anyway. having that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I know you're not a millennial, but anyway, um, but we do know that their attitudes are changing dramatically about diverse workplaces and, and things like that. So um, anyway, it's going to be interesting. If if anybody out there has ideas on how we should be covering it, how we should be thinking about it, I really, really appreciated that email and that call from that executive because um, all of us have to be thinking about this. All of us have to be thinking about how, uh, whether you're journalists, uh, commentators, or whatever, analysts, uh, tuna salesmen, whatever it is that you are, um, you need to be thinking about this and uh, and thinking about how this, um, how you need to um, make sense of this in your own life and how you uh, need to change um, your worldview. Because as you said, Rachel, I think all of us are learning a lot about um, uh, an experience that maybe we didn't know near enough about it, even though it was happening for some of us right in our backyard. So anyway. All right. Well, folks, we'll leave it there, and uh, we will be back next week. You can find us on intrafish.com. You can find our newsletters there. Uh, and of course, uh, this podcast, if you like it, please rate it, please subscribe. Then it'll get right into your, uh, right into your phones, I suppose, or your desktops when the new episodes are released. Uh, remember we have at the end of the month, uh, just a couple of weeks away, uh, our Whitefish Summit and we've got great people lined up. So Rabobank is going to be there, Aspersen, Birdseye Igloo and Vinhuan. So uh, already a great lineup. We have a couple other speakers that are, uh, that are on their way that are going to be confirmed. And I'm really looking forward to that discussion. Um, so, yeah, again, June 30th, uh, mark your calendars. All right, folks, we will talk to you next week.